As we meet this morning, we meet uh, not just for ourselves, we meet to come here and be in your presence. We meet that we might have our eyes open to wonderful things. We meet, Lord, to have our ears open to hear from your Holy Spirit. And so we pray, Lord, that that is exactly what we would see and hear in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 65 this morning. As we continue our study in the book of Psalms. And if you're wondering, how, how long are we going to be in Psalms? Well, <laughs> forever. Hopefully we will forever be in Psalms. Maybe not necessarily preaching through it, but uh, um, we're, gonna, we're gonna go through book two. Um, not every Psalm, but book two ends with Psalm 72. We're gonna, tr- we're gonna target that by um, towards the end of June, and then we'll take a break and we'll look at some, something else for a while, and then we'll come back and we'll do book three. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what that something else is going to be. We may diddle, diddle, uh, do a little dabbling in Romans, maybe. Um, I was thinking, I've been here 17 years, and I've never done a series in the book of Romans. And you think, how is that possible? It's like, well, Romans is a very, uh, it's, it's such a great book, but it's like, uh, once you start it, it's like one, un, one piece that just unravels. It's one giant argument that builds and builds and builds and builds. So once you start it, it's kind of hard to stop. So I knew if I get into Romans, I'm going to be there forever. Uh, so maybe we can find a way to break that up too so we can, you know, get a really good taste of Romans and then come back to maybe some Psalms and then we'll come back and get another big taste of Romans and something like that. But in any case, we're at Psalm 65 this morning and uh, I hope you have that open in your Bibles already and I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, setting its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. You know, like so many of the Psalms, the Psalm is, of course, inviting us to worship. But the grand point is that it's, it's, it's showing that God is at work in such a way that He's not just inviting us to worship, He's, he's inviting the whole earth to worship. 
And so he's doing things with regard to the way he answers prayer, with regard to the way he interacts with us, in order to get the attention of everyone on the face of the earth, because there is, there is not enough worshipers unless all of his creation is bowing before him. And so we see that somewhat uh, hidden underneath the words of this, not necessarily hidden, but clearly in the words of this psalm. But it also brings us back to something about the idea of, of worship. I know we talk about that a lot, but it's still somewhat hard to grasp what exactly is worship. And uh, I wanted to talk about some things in this psalm that will help us, I think, grasp that a little bit. And I want to use an illustration to do that, and it's, it's for you to think about something in your life, maybe it was someone in your life, that did something for you at just the right time, or said something to you at just the right moment, that it had a profound impact on your life. Now, it may be that that happened and you didn't realize the impact until, you know, a half hour after it was done or said, or an hour after it was done or said, or a week maybe even a month, maybe even a decade, and you look back on your life and you realize, wow, that person did such and such for me, and it was so timely, and it was so significant that my life literally would not be the same had that not happened. And it's in those moments when your eyes are open to see that, that you have this profound impulse to go and thank them, to go and tell them what you've done for them, to recognize it. And uh, uh, even if it's 10 years later, those moments are significant. And it's as, though, it's as though those moments move us to tears. It's as though those moments when we, we find that hairs on the back of our neck just standing up because, because of the profound thing that we saw happen with provision or with a word at the right moment, a very significant moment in our lives. And as you think about those moments when your eyes are open to see that, let me give you some examples. Like, like as, a, as a parent trying to raise kids, sometimes you run into challenging situations, and we're not quite sure how to deal with them. And then we think back to how our parents dealt with the same thing with us, and we never knew how hard it was until we were in that moment. But now we get it. Oh, wow, that was a really hard thing we put them through, and this is how they did it. And this is how it impacted me. And it's like my eyes are open to appreciate my parents in these brand new ways. And that's when I want to call them and tell them, do you remember when I was 10 years old and this happened and you treated me this way? That profoundly impacted me. It's why I'm able to do this with my 10-year-old now. Or maybe it's something else. Or maybe it was a time back in your life when someone forgave you for some horrible thing that you did. And you never really grasped how horrible it was until someone else does something similar to you. Maybe again, it's 10 years later. And when you feel the pain of that event happen to you, and you think back of how you did the same thing to somebody else and they forgave you, you recognize the significance of what they did. And so you want to call them and you want to thank them. You know what we call that? If we do that with regard to God, we call that worship. It's when your eyes are, are open to see those grand things that God has done in your life at just the right time, in just the right way, to put you where He's put you. Because most of the often we just take those things for granted. But when we come to worship and we, we sing a song like this, this is a song, it's meant to be those triggering moments that help us to see that God has been at work doing wondrous things for you 
so that we are moved to say, wow, I get it. I feel it. Thank you. And praise is genuinely on the lips. So as we go through this psalm, I want you to think about it like that. This is what our time in worship is to be, recognizing those moments when God has been at work with His provision. This song is an invitation. I mean, it was written for a choir. It was written to specifically be sung at certain times of the year as they met. And while he doesn't explicitly say when, it fits most uh, appropriately perhaps at the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the feast in which the harvest was brought in. He talks about the plenty, especially in the last half of the psalm, of of how God has provided the water and provided the grain and, and the flocks and all this stuff. So it's a celebration of the harvest. So if we think about it like that, it's to be sung at that time of year when the, the people are very aware of the fact that, wow, I am getting to harvest all, these, all this grain or this whatever it is that they're harvesting. Remember, this is an agricultural community. And it's time to reflect on the fact that the reason that, that we have that today is because God provided the rain yesterday and the, the month before and the month before. He provided the seasons in such a way, and we are taking the time to pause and to realize that this is why we have this today. And so we give praise to the Lord. So if you think about it like that, I want to go through and see how does this psalm invite us to see what God has done for us that's so significant that would catch our eyes in in a way that we would want to give Him thanks and praise. And the first thing is that we are invited to come into His house. We're invited to come into His house. Again, I think this is something that we so easily take for granted. But look how he starts this psalm. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall all vows be performed. That's kind of the introduction. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. So there's a, there's a movement there. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgression. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. So in those first four verses, what we see that God has done for the people is He has brought them into His house. He's saying, I want you to know that what you have is this intimate connection with me. I have a table, a feast set before you that I have provided, and I'm inviting you into my house to enjoy it. And that's a significant thing. I, I think when we come to worship, it's one of those, get up on Sunday morning, do I feel like it? Am I ready? We don't realize that what we have been invited is into somebody's personal house to enjoy intimate fellowship with them. And he says, that was no small thing. For that to be accomplished, it wasn't insignificant. I had to do a lot of work to prepare that table for you. And he hints at what those are, this is in verse 3, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. You atone for our transgression, the atonement. What is the atonement? Now, if you follow along with the Jewish calendar and the, the Feast of Tabernacles, which comes later in the year, you know, October or so, you have a few days earlier than this, just a few days before they would celebrate this feast, they would have, they would have uh, participated in the most holy day of the year, which is called Yom Kippur, which is called the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was a very significant day happening once a year in the life of the people of Israel. 
It was an event that they went through that would have engaged all of their senses. It would have gotten their attention. It, it would have heightened their understanding that they are a people that are sinful and dirty who have been invited to dwell in a place where God himself, who is holy, dwells. Now, that's like oil and water. They don't mix. There's, God has had to do some miraculous work in order for those two things to come together. It's like the polar opposites of the magnet here. They just repel. Holiness and sin repel each other. They cannot coexist. So unless God does something to remove that polarization, we cannot dwell in His house. And so He talks about this atoning work. That's what it, the atoning work that He has done that allows them to come in. So what is the Day of Atonement all about? And I wanted to read some of that to you because as you unpack it, as you read it, it tells the story so clearly, so helpful. He says this in Leviticus chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. So here's the story. Aaron is, is, was appointed to be the high priest of the Lord when God established them as a people after he brought them out of, of, of Egypt. And two of his sons, who were also appointed to be priests, they tried to draw near to the Lord in a way that wasn't prescribed, and the Lord put them to death. So right there off the bat, we say there is no way for us to approach the Lord except by the way that he provides. And that's what this Day of Atonement is talking about. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. So here we have some offerings being made, some sacrifices being made. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. So there's lots of animals that are being sacrificed on this day. So as you can imagine, if you come into a place like this, you can see the animals and they're being slaughtered. You know, their, their throats are being slit. The blood is being caught. And then they're being offered on the altar in various ways. Now that blood, things, they do things with that blood, and we're going to find out what that is. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. So you first have that has to happen. He's the priest. He's going before the Lord as a representative of the people. But before he can even do that, he has to make atonement for himself. He is not clean. So that's what he's doing with the bull. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil." And when he says the veil, they're talking about the way the temple was constructed. There was the outer walls of the, of, uh, the, the outer walls, and then there was the inner walls of the temple, which formed this place they called the Holy of Holies. And in that room was the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark of the Covenant, the, the top, the lid, was called the mercy seat, like the throne where God himself sat and dwelt. So he's, he's removed somewhat from the people because of the measure of holiness. He's still in their midst. That's what the tabernacle represents. But to approach him at that level of intimacy is going to require a great deal of atoning work. So the first thing he does in order to go in there, which is the only time of year he can do it, he has to atone for himself first. So as he, do, so as he does that, 
Let's read what he does then. Um, Where are we here? There we go. And he shall take some of the blood. Uh, let me back up. He's, he's doing all this so that he won't die. That's verse 13. Verse 14. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in the front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. So you can imagine this bull. It's full of the blood that he's caught when they slit the throat of the animal. He's dipping his hand in the, in the bowl and he's sprinkling it on this mercy seat as a way of cleansing it, as a way of making atonement for his own sin. He's getting it prepared. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he, meet, till he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. So he's, he's actually making clean or atoning for the actual elements that are, part, that are there. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Remember, there was two goats. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. So the first one that he sacrifices on behalf of the people. And the second one he brings live. And with, on the head of the live goat, he lays his hands and confesses over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. So I want you to picture that. There's a goat there. The priest comes and he puts his hand on the head of the goat and he starts confessing all the people's sin. So that's the picture. Now, where am I? And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. By the way, this is where we get the phrase scapegoat, because it's a picture of the sin of the people being transferred to the goat, and the goat being removed from the presence of the people from the presence of God, being cast out into the wilderness. Some versions talk about it going, uh, is, is dedicated to Azazel, which is a phrase that means kind of the wild things, where the wild things dwell, where the wild spirits were, where the demonic floating spirits who have no place in God's presence are been cast out. That's what the wilderness is representing. It's a place of eternal death. There is no provision out there. And that's where these are. You, Isaiah talks about removing your sin as far as the east is from the west. That's this picture, this atoning work. is not only providing the blood required to make you clean before the Lord, but actually to take the guilt from your sin and to separate it from you and from God's presence. That's the picture of this day of atonement. So he goes on. 
Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments and he put on when he went into the holy place and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar. Can you see and picture all this? Can you smell it kind of thing? I mean, all of the senses are engaged here. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar and he who lets the goat go to Azazel, okay, there it is, shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement for the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. So this is their picture of the day of atonement. Four days, I think it was, before this feast of tabernacles took place. So the first thing that they're reflecting on when they come into the Lord's presence, they're singing about, is the fact that He has brought them close to dwell in His house, to enjoy the bounty of His provision in His house, to satisfy them, and that had to take place through the atoning work of the Lord. Now we know, of course, what all those animals were pointing to pointing to Jesus Christ, of course. I mean, He was the one whose blood was spilled. That's why when we come to the table, we recognize the blood of Christ that was poured out on our behalf to make atonement for our sin. And as Jesus was hung on that cross and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The picture of God actually turning His back from Jesus Christ is the picture of the goat being led away from the people of God. He's being cast into, you could say, hell. By definition, that's what hell is. And that's what God had to go through in order to make this house habitable for you. So that when we come into worship, it's supposed to be that aha moment. Whoa, that's what God had to do for me? Wow. Secondly, the hope of all the earth, in verse 5 through 8, we see God's power, power in creation, power in redemption, uh, worked on behalf of the people. And so we read this. You could put it this way. Not only did God uh, atone for you, but He moves heaven and earth to bring you salvation. So verse 5, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. So here's the idea of your salvation came with awesome deeds, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. So all of this activity that's happening in the earth is displaying the mighty deeds of the Lord in order to move heaven and earth to bring you, accomplish your salvation. Now, when you read about mountains in the Bible, it's often symbolic of strength, 
of might, of power, especially power of a nation or power of a being or power of, an, of, a, of a king. And when you read about water, especially like this, the seas, it's symbolic of chaos and evil that man cannot control, which will sweep him away, but God can settle. So that's the picture that God is willing to move to shape and make mountains and still the evil and the chaos in the world in order to accomplish your salvation. Now, if you think about that in the story, in the ancient Israel story of how they came to the land in which they dwelt, it's exactly what God did. I mean, the might and the strength in the world at the time when they were enslaved was Egypt. That's who they were enslaved by. This was the greatest nation, the most powerful nation there. So this mountain had to be brought down in order for the people of Israel to be saved. So he's shaping, literally, the powers of the earth in order to establish another mountain, Mount Zion, in which they would be settled. And the land of Canaan is like the, the chaos of the waters. Here is a, here's a, a land that's full of people who are worshiping false gods, who are doing all kinds of evil. And there are people that they cannot conquer. You remember, people of Israel come out of Egypt. They don't have any weapons at all. They're not trained for war. They're worn-out slaves. And now they're coming to a people, when, when Moses gets to the edge of the land that he had promised them in Canaan, he sends 12 spies, and they go spy out the land, and they came back and give a report and say, well, it's a great land, but there's fortified walls and cities. In other words, there's mountains of power. And there's giants in the land. We look like grasshoppers in their eyes. And so as they come into the land of Canaan, and they are conquering this, these, these Amorites that they're often referred to as a representative of the people. And there are certain cities that are devoted completely to destruction. And those are an interesting set of cities. It's not every place in the land of Canaan that's, that's devoted utterly to destruction. And I know a lot of people make of this, this is why I don't want to trust the Old Testament, because it talks about doing violence and how you're supposed to kill people. Well, there's a certain context to that conquest, and it's pretty unique. And those particular places that are mentioned, one commentator um, talks about them as they're all in the, high, the hill country, and they're all places in which these ancient descendants, these giants dwelt. And you think, where do the giants come from? Well, the closest thing we can come to is in Genesis 6 when he talks about uh, the sons of God saw the daughters of men and they came down and, and married them and had children. And this is, these were the mighty men of old, the giants of old. So there's this representative of this of this unlawful union that has taken place, and these giants and mighty men have occupied the land that belongs to God's people but isn't theirs yet, and they're causing evil and chaos to, to reign. So when the people actually conquer this group and devote these, these areas to destruction, what we see happening is God stilling the waters, stilling the forces of chaos and evil in order to establish the mountain of God in Zion. So God is literally moving heaven and earth, mountains and the sea, in order to establish and accomplish your salvation, a place for you. So when they sing this song, it's saying, open your eyes. Not only did God atone for you that you could be close to me, 
but he also accomplished your great salvation by moving heaven and earth to do it. Lastly, lastly, oh, and by the way, let's apply that for just a moment to the New Testament because, you know, that was Old Testament salvation, and we think about that, even that was typological of the greater salvation that's brought through the greater Joshua, who was Jesus, who is who is bringing the kingdom of God to fill the whole earth. And the psalm is anticipatory of that, as you see. He keeps talking about the farthest places of the earth. That didn't happen in the time of the psalmist. That would happen only after Christ reshapes the landscape. When Christ has come, we have references to Him coming to tie up the strong man because now there's one stronger who is here. And how do we know He did that? Because He cast out demons as He went through. He healed diseases. He disrupted all of the chaos and evil that had a hold of the people. Even Paul talks about, we do not battle against flesh and blood in Ephesians 6, but against every principality, spiritual power that has erected itself against the Lord and His anointed. So we have this cosmic picture that is happening of heaven and earth, of the mountains and the chaos being set and still, not just physically, but cosmically as a result of what Jesus has come to do. Not only did He come to atone for your sin, but He also comes to reign in power to set up a kingdom of God that will one day fill the whole earth. So we sing of that, say, open our eyes. Wow, I see it. Lord, I want to I offer you praise. And lastly, the great provider. The great provider in verses 9 through 13 so he invites us to see that beyond even this spiritual work that God has done to draw us close and the cosmic forces that were shifted to save us from the forces of evil in the universe, God provides for the very simple things, the physical needs, all the physical needs. He is the God of the harvest, the bringer of blessing. So in verse 9, as we read, you visit the earth and water it, you greatly enrich it, The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, setting its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. The wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. So here we see this provision of God is spilling over even to the trees and the animals. Even the enemies of God are enjoying what God is doing as a provider of the earth. All that we enjoy across this world is nothing but a result, nothing but a result of the provision of God. And we, among all the people of the earth, are invited to see this and celebrate in it. I think this, is, this too is something we often forget that our lives and the blessings we enjoy from our work, our experiences, the food on our tables, the cars we drive, the homes we live in, are nothing but a result of God's faithful provision. Nothing but a result of God's faithful provisions. They are not things that we should take for granted. And I think we do. I do. I confess that I do. And how do you know when you're taking God's provision for granted? Because suddenly it's not enough. We think we need more. We go in pursuit of more. We even may get frustrated with it. 
or we grow anxious about not having it in the future. I mean, what did we confess with that Heidelberg Catechism this morning? We have no reason to be anxious, not just because God knows the hairs of our head, but He's providing for us daily what we need. Let's not take what He's given us for granted. It may not be what your neighbor has, but you don't need what your neighbor has, and he doesn't need what you have. God gives you what you need. I don't think there's anyone in here who's starving. If we were left to ourselves, I mean, we probably would be, but we're not. And you may say, well, that's because I have a job, because I'm applying my skills. So where do you think you got your skills? Who do you think gave those to you? Who do you think gave you the experience that you have in your life right now to be able to accomplish the things that you're accomplishing? So don't take pride in that or think that I have what I have because I am so smart or so gifted or so talented or so networked or whatever it is. No, God has provided even that for you. And this song is meant to take that veil away from our eyes so that we see that. They celebrated the harvest only at one time in the year, but that represented all the many ways up until that point that God had been providing the rains, the seasons, you know, everything that would allow that to come out at just the right moment. God is faithfully at work even in the little things that we enjoy. So, why? So that people from all the far ends of the earth will know that God is to be worshipped. And it's God's people who are invited to help pull that veil from people's eyes. As people see you worship. As people see you giving thanks. We have a God who is worthy of worship. So when we come on Sunday mornings and we sing those songs, let it be the lifting of the veil that you might see the ways in which God is doing wonderful things for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for songs like this, which are happy songs that talk about the great bounty that you, that you bring to us as you invite us into your very presence, your intimate house, and satisfy us with good things. Lord, help us not to take what you've given us for granted, but to come to you and say thank you, to give you praise to let those words flow out of us genuinely. In Jesus' name, amen.